Welcome to Security Heroes, a podcast by Athena Security. We share real life stories to help connect you to real heroes in the security world. I'm your host, Lisa Falzone. Warning, the following recording contains potentially disturbing content. Listener discretion advised. Joining me today is Todd Mill, the Director of Security Services and Emergency Disaster Management at Hamilton Health Sciences. Todd has an incredible track record of developing and strengthening security programs and is recognized for being an engaging and influential leader in the healthcare security operations and disaster management field. He was also recognized by Security Magazine over the past 12 years as one of the top 500 security leaders worldwide. Welcome, Todd. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. It's excited to be here today and maybe share a little bit of my history and what the future holds. Awesome. Well, first of all, I just wanted to say congratulations on winning the IAHSS Presidential Award. Can you talk a little bit about that war? What did you receive it for? And just talk about that. So really, that award is really around leadership and being able to drive and influence the security industry as it stands today. But being able to also be that person who can assist with bringing other people on board and motivating and growing their abilities to want to achieve the next level, the next steps in their career paths. So having that position in a leadership role really is something that it's humbling because when you see people grow from where you started with them and they achieve beyond expectations, you can only help but smile in the background thinking, you know, when I first started with that person, they started out uh, at entry level and now they are today. And it's uh, really gratifying to see that some of the influence that I had over the years has really driven their success. That's awesome. Well, congratulations again. Any individuals you want to give a shout out to? Well, big shout out to Brian Hamilton, obviously. So Brian Hamilton was the past president for the IHSS. And uh, one of the gentlemen, of course, that we grew together, so to speak, right? So at his entry level and being able to have the opportunity to grow and elevate in his career path and, and take the necessary steps from you know a, a frontline security officer into a lead in an organization and really being able to, again, influence the growth and bring other people on board and really appreciate that the security industry is very broad and has huge industry outreach. So one question I has been weighing on my mind is how is the security industry different in Canada and other parts of the world than the United States? That's a great question. You know, in the United States, I mean, there's a, a large contingency of uh, security professionals. You look at the uh, ASIS, for example, and there's you know, 30,000 plus members in that security industry, which again, the security industry is huge, whereas uh, my focus is really in the healthcare sector. And even though we have many, many Canadians as part of the ASIS, it's nowhere has the same depth as the Americans do. Same with in, in the IHSS. You look at the memberships as there as well, too. The American memberships definitely outweigh the Canadian memberships. And there seems to be a, just a stronger presence in the security field with the Americans. Definitely uh, well more funded, for sure, when it comes to uh, protection. You know, it's, it's great that the Canadians are actually adopting a lot of the, uh, the policies and procedures and some of the training. But the difference would be things like, for example, in healthcare, you wouldn't find uh, police stations in your hospitals, whereas you go to the States, it's not unusual 
to have uh, police officers, security guards, contract, and in-house uh, supporting their protection program. So that's a big difference there as well. Even from metal detectors, you'd find them a lot in American hospitals, for example, at the emergency departments, but not so much in Canadian hospitals. And maybe part and course because of our gun laws as well, too. Our gun laws are pretty stringent. And uh, even though there's laws existent in the States, it still allows for the opportunity. And that in itself probably just raises the, the need for a higher level of protection. Yeah, totally. So even though there are strict gun laws in Canada, are you guys still catching weapons at your hospital? Talk a little bit about that. I think we, we have more of a concern for sharps as opposed to uh, the guns. But yeah. we have noticed that uh, guns for, have really started to grow in, in Canada. They're getting across the border, I suppose, and they are infiltrating into some of our guns and gangs, if you will. But we do have more of a concern around sharps, knives, for example, that are easy to get a hold of. Uh, guns have come to light and we're more concerned about maybe, you know, shootings that have happened outside in the field, but they may, of course, migrate into our hospitals. So if someone has come across where they involved in some sort of exchange of gunfire, if you will, and it could be related to, uh, to gangs and those folks end up the land in our hospitals, uh, the thought or fear of, is, you know, can that same person still follow up and get into our hospital and try to continue on with that level of violence? It's definitely on our radar, but it's certainly not to the same extent as it would be in American hospitals. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because it's like we put our concealed weapon detection in and in some places in the United States, we're going to see, you know, 10 weapons and guns per night. And then sometimes, you know, in more strict gun law states, we'll see a little bit less, but we still see it. I would just... I don't think you guys have concealed weapon detection yet, but uh, I'd be curious what your stats are compared to what we're seeing. It would really be difficult to compare that type of analytic for sure, because we were not really tracking a lot of that uh, part for sure. As far as detection goes, we haven't really been utilizing a lot of that detection other than metal detectors. But again, it's a handheld metal detector, not like the metal detector that you would see at an airport. There is the type of technology, of course, that would detect gunfire. But it's not employed in a Canadian hospital, whereas you may find that one of the norms in American hospitals. But we definitely haven't tracked that that kind of a statistic at this point. We're hoping that we never have to, to be quite honest with you. I'm hoping our gun laws continue to be very restrictive. But like I said, we have noticed that there we have had an increase in violence, yeah. whether it be for gun violence or just an overall increase of violence overall. I think COVID has actually really uh, gotten to the minds of many and might even be part of that social economic that has prompted some of our increase in violence. Yeah, it's funny. We do have clients in Toronto, specifically like jewelry stores. They're seeing an increase in uh, gun violence, people coming in with a weapon. And so they're wanting to put, you know, concealed weapon detection in because they want to protect. So it's just, I wouldn't think that in Toronto, but so it's just interesting. Like I was saying, we have some concerns with guns on our streets and there has been exchange of gunfire and innocent people have been hit by that miscellaneous bullet, if you will. And, yeah. and we've experienced some death because of that. And that's really unfortunate. And it really does, you know, pull out the heartstrings of Canadians and it has raised a level of concern. And, uh, you yeah. know, while we're doing our level best to try to restrict it, it's really difficult to really get behind this. Why do you think COVID increased the level of violence? Because I'm hearing that across the board. What are your ideas? So I think just the social restrictions and not having the same ability to to socialize and get out there and be active, for example, I mean, activities, it's proven that activities 
actually help the mind, right? Mm -hmm. Help you decompress. But when all those things are taken away from you, such as going to the gym or going out and playing a game of hockey, if you will, and you're restricted to your four walls, I think it it really plays on uh, the mental health of many folks. And I think that's uh, really been a detriment to many and very difficult to handle. A lot of people uh, lost loved ones during COVID and not necessarily due to COVID, but other ailments. And they, of course, they weren't, they didn't have the ability to actually see them or just really finish and, and close off those final days. And uh, I think that really hit. So the mental health side of it all really got into the psyche of many and it created things that we couldn't, could not have foreseen at all. I think we're still trying to get around that. Mm. And we've attached a lot to uh, technology. And I think that technology even still uh, minimizes the social ability to, to meet one-on-one, if you will. All of our means right now are Zoom calls, right? So we're doing a lot more from our offices or from our homes. And it's really playing on that social activity. Yeah, totally. I mean, isolation is not good for mental health. I mean, I even noticed like my mental health going lower if I don't get out of the house, if I just, you know, stay on Zoom meetings and, you know, the whole day. So it's like I have to get out of the house at least once a day. Otherwise, my mental health takes a dive. So absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's that's statistically proven, of course, too. So just give us a quick on your background and your main responsibilities as the Director of Security Services and Emergency Disaster Management at Hamilton Health Sciences. I guess a little bit about my background. I mean, I really got into the industry almost right out of high school. Uh, As I was 18, always thinking about pursuing the security industry and or law enforcement. And I thought that, you know, while I was in, uh, actually while I was in high school, the opportunity to uh, get a part-time job in a Toronto-based hospital, it gave me a bit of a, a feeling or a touch, if you will, on what that field would look like. And back at that time, too, we're going back to 1986 here, so a little bit of a step back. There was no security guard licensing, for example. There was no policies, no procedures, no technology. It was really just about you got the job and you were giving keys and a radio, and you're expected to sort of uh, find your way around. And a lot of that has changed. So then with that opportunity and still thinking that maybe law enforcement might be a a great place for me to go, I dipped my toes into auxiliary policing, whereby I thought I could get a bit of a flavor of what law enforcement would be like. So I did that for 10 years while still continuing on to chase my path through the security field. And I had great people behind me there as well, too. They're very encouraging. And they said, you know, if you really want to get into some sort of leadership, you need to get on with continued education and follow up with management courses and really pursue the next step in your security career. And I was of the mindset too that I always thought that, you know, I I could really make something a little bit better. I want to do a little bit more with that. And so it really got me going. And doing so too, I started my own security business. So I owned and operated a a business for about uh, 10 to 12 years and was relatively successful to a point where I had to uh, pick a path. So I ended up uh, selling that company because I was really about the uh, in-house security model and the opportunity to elevate and grow and redevelop programs. And so, you know, 37 years later, after uh, spending many of those years in Toronto-based hospitals, now I'm out in uh, Hamilton Health Sciences. And again, the, the opportunity dropped on my table whereby they really wanted to elevate a program that was already strong, but they wanted to bring it to the next step, the next level to really have it shine. So looking at our policies, our procedures, our technology, our training, particularly around our training, our recruitment, our retention, and you know, recognizing that I did a lot of that over the years, it was just a perfect fit for, for me to go there and learn from what they already had established and been able to introduce them to maybe uh, new methods and new opportunities for how we can elevate that program. So 
you know, uh, six months later, I'm there now, and it's been very exciting. Hamilton Health Sciences is a large organization with uh, with several hospitals across the field that have your emergency departments and uh, your mental health components and your heliports and just a, a growing communities. It's really exciting to be part of that redevelopment process and really put them on the map. Yeah. What are you doing specifically to help elevate the security program? So when I first started, I really had to dive in and do a bit of an assessment of where they are, where they were then at that point. So I had an opportunity to review some security assessments that uh, they had undertaken with third parties. So really understand that document and then try to prioritize what I felt were the higher risk components. So from a staffing component, from a training component, from their technology, I really I had to make a business case from that security assessment as to where those priorities lie. So, you know, introducing that into a, you know, a situation, a background and assessment and a recommendation, uh, being able to present that to the executive leadership team to really be able to sell uh, those top priorities. And of course, the funding behind it that it would take to elevate that program. And that's what my focus was truly on was really looking at those again, looking at the policies the procedures and the training part of it all. The training is always really important. Mm -hmm. Want to make sure that training is available. It does meet the needs of healthcare organizations. And of course, our frontline security staff, you know, there's, you can never have too much education and or training, especially in today's world. And you want to be able to have those tools to do the job and be able to affect success. Yeah. What challenges have you had in implementing these new procedures? Well, in healthcare, a lot of it's about actually achieving some of the funding for that, right? So right. when you're when you're looking at uh, training and, and again all the funding, you're involved in a lot of uh, requests for proposals. So you need to make sure that you put out that RFP out there so that you could have uh, multiple vendors bid on, let's say, a training program, for example. And you need to make sure that RFP is well structured so that it checks all the boxes when you're actually providing that training for your frontline staff, and that takes a lot of time. By the time you actually structure an RFP with procurement and you send it out there and it spins for a while, it takes some time to select that program. Uh, same with reporting and dispatch software. You want to make sure that in order to drive your analytics, you want to make sure that you actually have the software to be able to pull from, right? So same idea, another RFP that would go out there looking for and it's reporting dispatch software. And of course, if you have contract security, which we do have a blended model at Hamilton, so we have an in-house program along with the contract model as well too, but we want to make sure that the contract speaks to what our organization requires. And part of that is in the training as well too. We want to make sure that our training is really solid as far as uh, de-escalation. And I mean, our frontline officers, again, armed with the tools to do the job so that they feel comfortable and they don't feel that they're outside their scope. It's quite a process. And uh, by the time we get there, it can be a couple of years. Just out of curiosity, what are you guys doing for incident reporting? So incident reporting right now, of course, so we have a software that we utilize and that software would provide the incident reports for our security staff. It's also dispatch as well too. So the dispatch software, so we have control center is the communication center for the organization when it comes to security, emergency, disaster management. And so that dispatch software goes out to our security staff. So when their call is dispatched, it goes out to the security staff and they would respond with their en route and 
when they got there, they'd be letting them know that they now on site. And then, of course, when they completed the call, they let them know that the call is completed. Those stats now figure into the software so that you can actually produce a report that talks about the length of that particular response and, of course, the level of response itself. It could be a patient assist, for example, or maybe it's a code white. Uh, it could be all kinds of things that you're dispatched to that our security staff are confronted with every day. But you really need to have a strong program to be able to pull those analytics because at the end of the day, when you're building your business plans, if you don't have strong information to support those business plans, you're going to have a very difficult time achieving that funding model in order to grow that program. Totally agree with you there. We noticed that a lot, like a lot of hospitals aren't doing incident reporting. And so we added that to our concealed weapon detection solution. People love it. But yeah, no, I mean, it's like you can't make any decisions unless you have the data. So totally agree with you. So just tell me about a firsthand experience where you or your team responded to a security situation that threatened the lives of people in your facility. Yeah, that's a great question. Again, really, it's a, you have to give a lot of kudos to our frontline staff as well, too, as far as what they come across in a, a daily event, if you will. But for example, we've had attempted suicides in our organization where folks are just truly not in the right frame of mind at that time. And they've made their way up to top level parking garage. You know, rested on the edge there and thinking that they're ready to go. Our security staff responded very well. And again, uh, you know, kudos to, again, their training and their de-escalation, being able to, to really engage and communicate. And, and that's the biggest thing. You need to be able to communicate and be able to try to really have a lot of empathy and really be able to, you know, walk a mile in their shoes, if you will, and try to understand what brought them there to that point today. So that's the moment where you save lives. If, if you don't have that secure response, I mean, even by the time your 911 emergency gets there, uh, every second counts, it's just like a fire, right? And right. being able to establish that communication, those lines of communication with, with somebody who is being prepared to, to end their life in that moment, talking them down, it's unbelievable. And it's, yeah, when, when I see my security staff do that, you're reviewing video of an incident and you can really appreciate and put yourself there in that moment as to what they were going through. And you want to be able to offer supports after that for your frontline staff, having that employee assistance program even afterwards, an opportunity to debrief the whole event is just as important as the event itself. So those are a couple of events, things that happen from time to time, and they're, yeah. they're very concerning. And we try to put preventative measures in place so that does not happen. But our staff come across that. But if it weren't for those, again, those policies, procedures, and the training and the response, they wouldn't be armed with the tools to do the job well. So was this person who was trying to commit suicide, was that person an employee at the hospital? Yeah, it's not necessarily employee. It could okay. be so a couple of things. We've had patients who've decided that they're going to take matters into their own hands. We've had uh, people who've just wandered from the street who thought, well, there's a spot to go. And, you know, for whatever, whatever experience that they were having, when you're in a, a city hospital or your hospitals within, you know, main city, it's just a welcome that for all kinds of ventures. And so we've had uh, patients and we've had visitors, uh, staff now. Yeah. I don't recall. You yeah, know, yeah. staff going to that extreme. Got it. Okay. Um, like I said, we do have a lot of support mechanisms in there, but patients, visitors for sure. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you realize like that, you know, suicide is actually, there's a lot more people committing suicide than homicide as far as like gun violence and all that. And so I think it's great. Did the person end up like surviving? Are they alive today or? Yeah, no, that patient survived. They were That's actually awesome. able to uh, to speak, talk them down. And if it wasn't for those security officers, that patient may have tried to execute their desire to end their lives. But I think with the uh, the security officer, they were able to really speak them down. 
And it bought time for the 901 services to also engage as well too, right? You know, we, we can never forget the amount of uh, social work that is employed into having that conversation and being able again to empathize with someone who's in, in distress. Well, congratulations to your staff in having that huge win and saving people's lives, not only from, you know, homicide to suicide too. I think that just such an act of valor. It's, it's amazing. So just congratulations. Leading a team that really cares. So, as far as nominating that act of valor as well, too, right? I mean, there's so many acts of valor out there, you know, across North America. And and sometimes it's hard to really uh, distinguish some that are are really truly unbelievable. And and while many of them are, when you have to nominate and you, it's a selection committee, if you want, that finds that one that's just unreal. It's, uh, we don't dismiss the ones that took place, but there's always that nomination process that takes place between the International Association for Healthcare Security and Safety annually. Yeah. Is this one of the reasons why you were attracted to the industry or tell me a little bit more about that? I think the healthcare security industry is extremely unique. I mean, if it, I felt at that time that it would really position myself well to look at a law enforcement agency across the board because their experiences in healthcare, it's healthcare, it's a large city in itself. We deal with everything that the average law enforcement officer would, the same type of response. We're obviously in Canada, we're not carrying guns. The level of response is very similar and really prepares us or something larger. But the healthcare is a really good step if you really want to get into the security industry. It's really a good place to appreciate the levels of stress and the things that you would see or come across in your everyday, in your everyday world. So I would absolutely, you know, say that if you're looking for a career in security, healthcare is a really good place to uh, really get a flavor of what it's all about. Yeah, I agree. And it's like you're dealing with people at their worst and there's just so many different challenges. And I mean, at least in the United States, I mean, the nurses and emergency room doctors are really not feeling safe. So it's just great to be able to protect those workers. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there's there's a lot about I mean, workplace violence is definitely right. on everyone's radar, right? And particularly with our medical staff, you know, they want to be able to feel safe and that level of feeling safe. There's a lot of engagement in that from having, you know, your programs established through being able to communicate to that. Violence is simply not acceptable in our healthcare organizations. That comes on many levels, right? From a communication to advertising, if you will, and training, but really to make sure that our clinical staff are feeling supported. And part of our clinical staff is really all hospital staff. It's not just your clinical staff, it's your security staff, it's your support services staff. Yeah. are all that process in caring for a patient. What are the qualities of an outstanding leader in the healthcare industry? An outstanding leader. Well... See if I can actually try to articulate this in a way that. Like, what do you look when you, like, what do you look for when you're looking to hire? For me, I'm looking at someone who is very mature and they're thinking that they have the ability to, again, grow outside themselves. So I don't look for someone who's just simply, I want to be a police officer, for example. I don't look for someone who simply has law and security education or diploma, but, you know, leadership is really, you know, unlocking someone's potential to reach for that top to become a better person in their everyday aspirations. It means sharing knowledge and the freedom to ask questions and provide answers without hesitation. I want to be able to give credits when credits do. I mean, nothing kills motivation more than when good work is not celebrated. So what I'm looking for are those staff out there. Again, I'm looking for someone who's able to almost have that social work background, if you will, right? So, I mean, the ability to communicate and to escalate is really something that I look for. They don't necessarily have to have 
all kinds of years of security background, but they have to have a mature outlook as to appreciating informed care, applying that. Again, when we talk about walking in someone else's shoes, you walk that mile in someone else's shoes, it helps you have an appreciation for that. So again, healthcare security is, is very special. It's not your bar, if you will. We're throwing people out if they're not behaving correctly. We want people to behave correctly, but at the same time, too, we need to understand where they're coming from and what brought them to the hospital on that day. And there's a certain level of maturity that comes with that. As time has gone by, how do you see the role of technology in managing healthcare security? Can you give any examples? I mean, technology is ever growing, right? Every three to six months, a camera will change models. It will have higher pixels. You, we've gone from 3K, 4K to 5K cameras in very quickly. And now we're looking at things like wearable video solutions, body-worn cameras, for example, right? We like to soften up that military talk, if you will. But those wearable video solutions is something that's actually being entertained in Canadian hospitals now and has launched. They're probably more prevalent in American hospitals, but Canadian hospitals, it really provides an opportunity for our frontline staff to support them and provide evidence as to what they were enduring at that time when things were going sideways. So that's a technology that's really up and coming, I find. And I said, there's not a lot of Canadian hospitals right now that are employing them, but there are a couple. And with our privacy laws as well, too, there's a lot of communication in order to make sure that our frontline staff, our unions, our legal teams, our privacy teams, are all on board with formulating the policies and procedures behind the use of a body-worn camera and its application in the field. So that's something that's up and coming now, I feel. We did a large drive for that last year in our Toronto-based hospitals, and I think that's something that's going to continue to grow. The cameras really tell a story, right? And now even with the cameras itself, at one point in time, it was just a picture. Now we're introducing more audio into video cameras, and that audio really, again, paints a picture of tone and what was taking place in that moment that why it escalated. I think you'll see more of that in our future. So I'm just curious about this because I'm a business owner. What was it like running your own business in the security industry? What are some accomplishments that you're most proud of? What were some challenges? Well, I mean, I was I was proud that I was actually able to launch a business in security again. And I didn't really have a full appreciation of what it took or the margins that were actually received in starting a guard company. Again, I was only doing a guard company at that time. I did not launch into the technology at that point in time. And really, there was a fine balance in being able to provide guard services at really top level and achieve some sort of margin in order to make sure that you were continually successful. It was very difficult at that time. And I found that as the profession itself was became more regulated, I had an opportunity to sit on the ministry to develop actual questions for security guard licensing. And that was quite the chore. But uh, I felt proud of that because I was able to get behind and really assist with the implementation of security guard licensing standards and training. But it was just too many balls in the air for me at that time. So mm-hmm. something I had to give. And I felt that the offload of my company at that point in time to a larger company made sense for me as I was growing deeper and larger into healthcare security. So something I had to give. And ultimately, that's the path that I chose. I'm very passionate about healthcare and making sure people are, are able to thrive and be strong and healthy. And that goes for not just our frontline staff, but all the patients that walk through our doors. I mean, there's many times where you'll see a cancer patient, for example, walk through our door. You really have to, again, appreciate what they're going through. It's really overwhelming when you see every day that they have to walk through something that's so challenging and we need to be part of their comfort. Did you, you talked a little bit about the margins and security guards. Did you find that challenging or 
Yeah, I found that very challenging. I mean, margins in security guard companies and only that provide guard services. I mean, generally your margins are anywhere between two and four percent. So not a lot. It's very competitive. It's a very competitive space. Yeah. The amount of guard service companies that are out there are infinitesimal. It's just mm-hmm. huge. And to be able to compete, uh, really difficult. You want to be able to provide a really high standard for your security guards. But at the same time, too, you need a bill rate to correspond with making sure you get that training done. And with all those companies that are out there, it was really hard to compete that way. So for me, I felt there was a, another path that I should take because I really wanted to get into the technology side of the house as well, too. And that's where cameras really started to grow. And we were launching more of the technology. So it was just a more exciting space for me to be in something that was more encompassing than just simply guard services. Were your guards armed or unarmed? No. Again, back in that time, we didn't even have personal protective equipment such as protective vests or handcuffs and expandable baton. None of that was had back in the late 80s. As we grew and the education part of it all, the handcuffs came to light. Expandable batons are found in many healthcare organizations now, but not all of them. Uh, it depends on the size of the organization. And personal protective equipment, uh, PPE, uh, personal protective equipment really started coming out in the mid-2000s. But uh, again, back in the day, you would see security guards that were didn't have that level of training or protective equipment to help themselves. So we've really come a long way from then until now. It's going to continue to grow, especially with the support of technology. Yeah. Did you, what kind of training did you put your guards through both currently and running your own business? Yeah. So again, with my own business back in the day, there wasn't a lot of training back then because it just, this is pre-licensing, right? So when I was just getting on board, as far as being part of that licensing for security professionals, this was all, again, it was all pre that. So really there wasn't a lot of training other than orientation of the site, but there wasn't a lot of training when it came to uh, workplace violence. I mean, we teach the basics such as trespass for property, but when it came to really de-escalation, a lot of that wasn't there. It was really, you launched in the field and you were trained through orientation, which is very unfortunate, which is not found in today's security path, mostly anyway, but it's definitely a big change. Now, the trained standards, you look at a security officer now who would go through for security licensing. There is a 40-hour training course that they would have to participate via the ministry. And so once you have that and you pass that successfully, you had your license and you were able to work with any industry that you desired. In healthcare, of course, uh, training can vary. But generally speaking, when it comes to a de-escalation and handcuffing and defensive baton training, you're anywhere from... 24 hours to 48 hours, depending on your program. It, it may include a lot of uh, trauma-informed care, unhoused persons as well, too, and, and really, again, level understanding. But generally speaking, in healthcare, you'll have training programs anywhere, again, from 24 hours to 48 hours in order to be able to launch them successfully into the field. What is your, in closing, what is your vision for the healthcare security industry in the next five, 10 years? So I really enjoy the being part of redevelopment. It's nice to get to be part of an organization that is, is in new construction or building new departments. And you want to be able to have all your technology in advance of the organization being built. Uh, technology is huge and not just for our security staff, but for our clinical staff as well, too. A lot of wireless solutions out there. Again, making sure that your video camera is in place and all this, of course, is supported by your training. But I see more and more technology coming into play. And I think you see that with new hospitals being built. A lot of these hospitals right now are being built with already intelligence being right there, right? So 
a lot of those wireless solutions are, are already accompanied from a duress point of view, from tracking patients in our organization, from a visitor management. People walk into your building. This is all tracked. So you don't just walk in without having any type of restriction, but all this is now tracked. And uh, so the more we build and the more visitor management, I think that you'll see launched in the more wireless solutions that take place for your staff and security, supported by your training in health and safety. This is where I see organizations growing. It's only going to get bigger in the technology space is going to continue to grow and we can't shy away from it, right? So IT and physical security are partnerships when it comes to the build for safety and security. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. Anything else you want to add? No, thank you very much, Lisa, for having me today. I really had a great time providing a little bit of a background on myself and and what the vision holds. And I wish you nothing but the best for future success. And you as well. Thank you, Lisa. Security Heroes is brought to you by Athena Security. To find out more about Athena Security and how we help save lives through our weapon detection solution, visit www.athena-security.com. And then make sure to search for Security Heroes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Athena, thanks for listening.